Hey listeners, it's Molly Brandenburg, co-host of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries. I'm back again with my co-hosts, Carter Roy and Richard Rosner, for our second episode of Jurassic Week. Hey everyone, it's Carter. This Sunday marks the 30th anniversary of the movie Jurassic Park, and we're sinking our teeth into wild behind-the-scenes stories, shocking facts about dinosaurs, and a conspiracy theory that feels like a plot point come to life. And I'm Richard. We're very excited to bring you another episode of Jurassic Week. Let's get into it. In the early 1800s, unmarried women weren't welcomed in scientific fields. But Mary Anning wasn't like other women. She was an avid fossil hunter, and while it could only be a hobby for her, she was exceptional at it. Over the course of Mary's fossil collecting career, she traveled all over England recovering specimens from many animals, including some that had never been discovered before. She even helped champion the idea that giant reptile-like fish had once dwelled in England. This would have been during a bygone era when large chunks of land were still underwater. In 1823, Mary made a discovery to back that theory. She found a five-inch-long skull that looked like it was part fish, part reptile. It wasn't like any other species known to man. Certainly not at that time. So Mary sent the bones to other experts to confirm her finding. Collectively, they dubbed the creature a plesiosaurus. Plesiosaurs are long-necked marine reptiles with fish flippers. They look kind of like the Loch Ness Monster. They're not technically dinosaurs, because by definition, dinos only lived on land while plesiosaurs were aquatic. But they lived during the dinosaur era and were distantly related. But Mary didn't know that, because in 1823, nobody had even heard the term dinosaur. So, as you can imagine, her discovery of the plesiosaurus skyrocketed her to fame. It inspired scientists to rethink everything they knew about biology. It even inspired a shift in religious thought. If the Earth was once home to monsters, what did that say about the biblical accounts of the Garden of Eden? How could Earth begin as a paradise if it was full of these frightening animals? Imagine an animal so staggering, its discovery changes everything from science to theology. Dinosaurs are just that big of a deal. And we're still learning more about them today which means more mind-blowing revelations might be headed our way. Welcome to Jurassic Week, our three-part special presented by Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries. This week, we're teaming up to celebrate one of the most beloved movie franchises of all time, Jurassic Park. In our first episode, we talked about the movie that kicked it all off, Jurassic Park. 
We explored the making of the film, the legacy it left behind, as well as the challenges Steven Spielberg overcame to get his dinos to come to life on screen. At least in theory. Many people think the movies are inaccurate. From the dinosaurs themselves to the way the park could function, if the plot were to happen in real life, the creatures could be even more dangerous. We have all that and more coming up in this episode. Stay with us. For thousands of years, people have uncovered strangely large skeletal remains. And for a long time, no one knew how to explain them. Some claimed they were dragons. Others thought they were monsters that drowned in Noah's flood. The more level-headed folks wondered if they were large, extinct breeds of crocodiles or something else still in existence. But that all changed in 1841, when a physician named Richard Owen surveyed a collection of these ancient bones, hoping to get an answer once and for all. Now, it might seem odd for a medical practitioner to also do paleontology, but Owen was a special kind of physician. He had zero interest in working in a hospital, so he'd become an expert at comparative anatomy. He looked at the structures in all different kinds of animals to figure out how they worked. He went on to publish texts on birds, reptiles, and extinct creatures. Yet in the fall of that year, he was about to make his most notable discovery yet. Owen thought the bones he'd been studying belonged to a whole new classification of beasts. They weren't birds or fish or anything else he recognized in the living world. They were something else entirely. By 1842, he'd named these creatures Dinosauria. Roughly translated from Greek, the phrase meant terrible or inconceivable lizard. Paleontology has come a long way in the nearly two centuries since Owen coined the term dinosaur. These days, when most people picture dinos, they imagine the creatures from the Jurassic Park movies, nimble, intelligent apex predators. But Owen saw them very differently back then. He even helped shape the public's first perception of these creatures. One of Owen's contemporaries wanted to demonstrate what dinos looked like for the general population. In 1852, a decade after Owen's discovery, officials commissioned a series of statues to be displayed at an exhibition hall in London called the Crystal Palace. These replicas would be life-size and anatomically correct. Now, when we say anatomically correct, we mean they were accurate to what scientists like Owen understood at the time. Back then, researchers assumed all dinos were four-legged lizards. So the sculptures made them look like massive Komodo dragons or iguanas. Nearly two years after their commission, on December 31, 1853, the artist debuted his models for about 20 local renowned figures. He invited them to a New Year's Eve dinner inside a mold of one of the statues. The replica was hollowed out so a dining set could be placed within it. Unfortunately, it was only big enough to house 11 guests. The others had to sit next to it, seething with jealousy. 
The art project soon went live to the public, and it was a huge hit. 40,000 guests swarmed the grounds, including Queen Victoria and the monarchs of France and Portugal. The exhibit clocked hundreds of thousands of guests in just a decade. It even inspired literary works like Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Essentially, the Crystal Palace was a pop culture phenomenon, the Jurassic Park of its day. You can actually see those dinos for yourself next time you're in London. Most of them are still standing in all their outdated glory. We don't want to make it sound like Victorians were clueless about dinosaurs. Some of their early discoveries were spot on, but it took over a century to confirm those findings. For example, back in 1861, paleontologists discovered a new species of feathery bird. It was closely related to the dinos and lived around the same time. Now, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce its Latin name, all you need to know is researchers examined this creature and figured dinosaurs were genetically similar to birds. Some took it a step further, proposing birds were actually descended from dinosaurs, that this feathery species could be a missing link of sorts, a halfway point in the evolution from dino to duck. But the scientific community wasn't universally on board with that idea. According to a BBC documentary titled The Dinosaur That Fooled the World, that all changed more than 100 years later in 1999. That's when a team of paleontologists led by Dr. Philip Curry announced they'd identified a new species called the Archaeoraptor. Like the bird creature I just mentioned, the Archaeoraptor was hailed as a missing link in the evolutionary chain. It had saurian claws, bird legs, and a dino tail. The fossils even seemed to suggest it was feathered. The discovery was hailed as a major breakthrough. Profiles of the findings appeared in National Geographic magazine. Once again, dinos sparked a pop culture frenzy. Then a paleontologist named Xu Xing looked closer at the evidence and made a more shocking claim. Archaeoraptor was actually a hoax. There's a lot of money in selling fossils, and dealers can make more with a complete skeleton than a partial one. This has inspired unscrupulous vendors to take pieces of different animals and claim they derived from the same individual. So the reason Archaeoraptor seemed like it was part bird and part dinosaur was because some of its bones did come from a bird-like creature. Others came from a separate dino. But here's where things really got wild. Earlier, we said the specimen had signs of having feathers. Well, some of those signs were on the dino bone pieces of the Frankenstein creature. In other words, while the Archaeoraptor was a fraud, the remains were still a scientific gold mine. The dino parts belonged to a previously undiscovered species that was still very bird-like. It's said to have even lived in trees. So the scam had a silver lining. It still proved birds and dinosaurs were closely related. In fact, today it's widely accepted that birds evolved from dinosaurs, especially now that we have the evidence to prove it. And many scientists agree. 
dinos had feathers. It turns out feathers weren't limited to just one species of dinosaur. Researchers contend that several kinds of dinosaurs had them. Some think most dinos did, but it's still being debated. Regardless, it's tempting to think of feathered dinosaurs as giant birds, which would certainly be terrifying. Few people would want to face off against a 12-foot-tall hawk or eagle. Of course, that's not what velociraptors or T-Rexes looked like in the movies. Not even close. But apparently, that's not the only thing the movies got wrong. Not by a long shot. Coming up, science marches on toward the silver screen. Now back to the story. Dinosaurs might be the most fascinating creatures that ever lived. Their allure attracts us to dig sites, museums, and blockbuster movie franchises. It's possible people obsess over dinos because of the iconic mystery that surrounds them. The question of what could wipe out such massive, awe-inspiring beasts. Initially, scientists figured dinosaurs were just an inferior species. They had to die out so their genetically superior descendants could inherit the Earth. Perhaps dinosaurs vanished for the same reason you don't hang on to your old Nokia flip phone. The march of progress eliminates old, inferior versions. But many experts would say that line of thinking is incorrect. First and foremost, evolutionary theory doesn't acknowledge the idea of progress. Species don't improve as they evolve, they just change. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. So it's not fair to compare evolved animals to phones that come out with updated features. It's more like looking at a bunch of drawings you made while you're blindfolded. Some are great, some are terrible. Most are just weird. In reality, a species' survival largely depends on how random genetic variations function within a given environment. What Richard means is, today's animals aren't necessarily superior to creatures that have gone extinct. Ancient creatures could be just as good as anything that's alive today. Even the Jurassic movies acknowledge this. Repeatedly throughout the franchise, dinosaurs are described as intelligent or as hyper-efficient killing machines. So they didn't die because they were too stupid or slow to live. Something drove them to the brink. And in the early 20th century, nobody knew what that something was. Fast forward to the 1980s. Father and son team Dr. Lewis and Walter Alvarez examined layers of dirt found within the Earth's crust and determined one of those dust bands could only come from one thing, an asteroid impact. Typically, a small meteoroid would cause soil to go flying up into the air, which would then resettle on a small area of the ground. But this layer appeared everywhere, around the globe. Meaning the space rock that hit must have been massive. Interestingly, the Alvarez's sediment layer dated to about 66 million years ago, the exact time the dinosaurs were thought to have gone extinct. 
The argument feels even more airtight now because after the Alvarezes published their finding, scientists found the crater tied to that asteroid impact. It's in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula and is more than 100 miles wide. And it dates to right before the era when dinosaurs vanished from the Earth. So, there we have it, right? It seems like dinos were wiped out when an asteroid smashed into our planet. The collision was so intense, it triggered massive tidal waves and sparked forest fires. The dust it kicked up blocked the sun, killing plants, and cooling the planet. Entire regions were buried in ash from exploding lava. Imagine a crash so big, scientists believe it wiped out a bunch of species, not just the dinosaurs. It marked the end of an era, literally. Ah, if it were only that simple. Contrary to popular belief, many scientists aren't convinced the asteroid is the only factor in the dino's extinction. See, before that asteroid, which was also known as the Chicxulub impactor, Earth's supercontinent Pangaea broke into smaller pieces. North and South America, Eurasia, Africa, India, Australia, and Antarctica. The process took more than 100 million years, but the geological shift made oceans appear where none had been before. This had an impact on wind and temperature patterns, as well as humidity. What I'm actually saying is the dinos were dealing with climate change. Things got really wild during the final two million years before the extinction. All that tectonic activity meant volcanoes were erupting much more frequently. There was more dust and ash in the air, blocking sunlight and altering the composition of our atmosphere. Acid rain blanketed plains and forests while global temperatures fluctuated. Some experts think volcanoes were a major contributor to the death of the dinosaurs. Just like in the fifth movie, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Up until that film, all the dinosaurs lived on the same volcanic island. But when the vent erupts, it wipes out every animal that can't be evacuated. There's one striking scene where the characters watch a Brachiosaurus rearing in terror as fire surrounds it. About 12 million years before the asteroid darkened the Earth's skies, actual dinosaurs were struggling too. Some evidence suggests there were fewer kinds of species than before. Like they were declining becoming less diverse. Perhaps without the Chicxulub impact, all dinosaurs would have gone extinct on their own anyway. Now, we want to be clear. An asteroid did hit the Earth about 66 million years ago. It was massively destructive. You can hear more about it in last year's Unexplained Mysteries episode, Doomsday, Can We Survive a Killer Asteroid? There's abundant evidence of a mass die-off right after the space rock hit. So the question isn't if the asteroid killed the dinosaurs, it's whether those other factors would have wiped them out anyway. And that answer might always remain a mystery. But paleontologists make new breakthroughs all the time. 
we could uncover our next big finding in the most unexpected of places, like, say, the moon. That's right. Some scientists think there may be dinosaur bones on the moon. Not because they live there, but because the Chicxulub impact might have blown rock sediment and fossils into space. Now, that's just a hypothesis, one we won't be able to test without a more robust space program. But that's the cool thing about paleontology. The mysteries might be tens of millions of years old, but the answers could be uncovered tomorrow. In the meantime, we're finding ways to bring those dinos back to life and solve some of those mysteries through pop culture. Which means making hit movies, even when the filmmakers aren't exactly sure what the dinos should look like. In 1993, when Jurassic Park came out, paleontologists didn't know dinosaurs were feathered yet. Remember, the fake species Archaeoraptor wasn't allegedly discovered until 1999. So we can't blame Spielberg for making his creatures more like lizards than birds for his first film. Of course, the featherless dinos were criticized by the time some of the sequels came out. People called them outdated. It took until the sixth movie, 2022's Jurassic World Dominion, for a truly terrifying feathered predator to debut on screen. In some cases, they intentionally got certain facts wrong to make the story better. Remember the Mosasaur? That's the giant shark-looking thing in the tank in Jurassic World. Spoiler alert, but it's the one that eats Bryce Dallas Howard's assistant. In the later movies, it capsizes a whole fishing boat. It sure does, but see, a real Mosasaur would have had a much harder time devouring a person, let alone sinking a ship, because they were a heck of a lot smaller than they appeared on screen. On the other hand, Dilophosaurus were a lot bigger than what's portrayed in the movie. Dilophosaurus are the little waist-hide frilled guys from the first film. They iconically spit venom on Wayne Knight's character, Dennis Nedry. In reality, Dilophosaurus didn't have frills or spit venom, and they were about eight feet tall. In fact, they looked a lot like the movie's depiction of a velociraptor, which is why Spielberg's team changed them. They didn't want to confuse audiences by having their predators look too similar. Speaking of velociraptor, in Jurassic Park and its sequels, raptors were taller than the people. They were bipedal lizards with long tails, sharp teeth, claws, and greenish-brown skin. But in reality, they probably looked more like turkeys or vultures. Some paleontologists think velociraptors were about the size of miniature poodles. Others believe they were a little bigger, closer to wolves. But they certainly weren't six feet tall. And they were almost definitely covered in feathers. Beautiful, colorful, vibrant ones at that. Researchers have determined some dinosaurs had bright red crests, vibrantly dappled patterns, even iridescent pearly heads. Raptors might have been as flashy as peacocks, triceratops as brilliant as the toucan, or maybe pterodactyls were as pretty as parakeets. 
It's hard to blame Spielberg for ignoring the science when designing the Predators for his movie. He wanted Jurassic Park to have menacing beasts, and from the sound of it, biologically accurate velociraptors weren't that scary. They were small, fluffy, bright. In other words, they were cute. Hey, maybe they'd make good pets. Couldn't you imagine walking your dog-sized velociraptor down the street? On a leash, of course, so it didn't take off after the neighborhood cats and squirrels. Well, I'm not sure I'd want one of those things inside my house, because we do know one thing. Resurrected dinosaurs likely wouldn't behave the way Spielberg's creations did. Chances are, they'd be far more dangerous. Coming up, we take a look at how a real Jurassic Park might function. Now, back to the story. For the sake of argument, let's pretend dinos came back to life. It doesn't matter how or why, but imagine you could put them in an amusement park, just like in the Jurassic Park movies. So you're in your Jeep. Or one of those plastic bubble cars like the film. You're cruising around the grounds, gawking at these incredible beasts in their habitats, when suddenly... There's a breach. Safety measures fail. The dinosaurs get out. A T-Rex or Stegosaur attacks you. Would you know what to do next? Before we get into that, let's talk about whether we'd realistically find ourselves in this situation if we were to visit one of these parks. The movie showed it because, well, they needed conflict. But in theory, we'd hope a real-world exhibit would be way more secure. Let's look at the fictional safety measures, then talk about how we could improve on them. Okay, so in the movie, the dinos are all intentionally female. This way, they can't reproduce without the employee's intervention. The velociraptor pen is enclosed, but the ceiling opens so staff can feed the predators without setting foot inside. Plus... Parts of the park are surrounded by an electric fence. The fourth movie, Jurassic World, shows workers in a high-tech HQ. They have state-of-the-art screens displaying data about the facilities and the dinosaurs inside. They can even track their guests' movement through the attractions. The novel details even more safety measures. Each cage is surrounded by an impenetrable moat, and the animals are all genetically engineered so they'll drop dead if they ever set foot outside the park. And in spite of all those measures, the dinos still escape. In real life, zoos have strong protective fencing, and not only in the animal enclosures. Restaurants and other buildings can serve as reinforced shelters should the need arise. And in some cases, different areas of the zoo can be sealed off from one another. So if an animal escapes from Region A, visitors can still safely walk around Region B. Perhaps most importantly, wildlife park employees do lots of drills, multiple per year. In some cases, members of the staff dressed up as tigers, zebras, or monkeys so their co-workers could practice capturing them. 
In 2004, a Tokyo employee wore a rhino costume, while other staff members pretended to be injured. This way, employees could practice recapturing him while dealing with medical emergencies. But we doubt a human actor in a suit could credibly impersonate a rampaging T-Rex. It's very possible that a real-world Jurassic Park wouldn't be able to safely contain its most dangerous dinosaurs after a breakout. But they could try. Let's imagine you're designing your own dino-themed attraction. We'll call ours Cretaceous Kingdom. Now, in pop culture, Jurassic Park employees have trank guns, stun guns, and real artillery. Yet somehow the weapons always fail. Again, for plot conflict. Exactly. Plus, the dinos seem relatively unbothered by the tasers and occasionally tranquilizers, too. We don't know for sure if dinosaurs would be as resistant in real life. Chances are, breeds like mosasaurs and triceratops would be big enough to shake off a dose from a tranquilizer. Others have skin so thick and armor-plated that these projectiles would bounce right off it. So, if you want to be extra safe, you probably wouldn't want to showcase those bigger breeds at the park. And that includes what may be the most beloved dino of all, the Brachiosaurus. Oh, that's easily my favorite. Brachiosaurs are the big, long-necked dinos that appear on screen right after the characters arrive at Jurassic Park. One sneezes on Lex about halfway through the first movie. But unlike the film, you can't just throw a Brachiosaurus in a big pen and call it a day. They're too big. They can grow to be up to 40 feet tall. For comparison, the largest land mammal alive today is the African bush elephant, which grows to about 13 feet in height and weighs on average between 5 and 7 tons. Consider a healthy elephant, which can walk up to 50 miles a day. Zoo enclosures aren't anywhere near that big, so some zookeepers take them on a daily walk for extra exercise. As an even larger animal, a captive Brachiosaurus would likely need more room to thrive. And we don't know how you'd walk an animal that's the size of a four-story building. Or if you should. In Jurassic Park, Brachiosaurs are depicted as gentle giants. In real life, they might have been pretty violent. In fact, this issue that Brachiosaurs and other plant eaters are depicted as friendly might be the most egregious falsehood in the Jurassic series. Repeatedly throughout the franchise, characters tell us that dinosaurs can be sorted into two categories. Carnivores are scary, violent, and vicious. Herbivores are friendly, peaceful, and safe. In actuality, researchers think some vegetarian beasts could have been pretty dangerous, and it may not have been as difficult to escape some predators, despite what we saw in the movies. Take that scene from the first film, where the T-Rex chases after a speeding Jeep. According to a 2017 University of Manchester study, the Tyrannosaurus was simply too big and too heavy to break into a sprint. The stress of a dash forward would have actually broken its legs. 
So if that exciting scene was realistic, it would end with the T-Rex collapsing to the ground. As for herbivores, let's take a look at Triceratops. Those are the plant-eating, four-legged creatures with big frills and three horns. Remember the scene where Laura Dern's character plunges her hands into a giant pile of dino poo? Oof. Well, the sick dino she's treating is a Triceratops. In the movie, Triceratops aren't really depicted as a threat. Yet paleontologist Andrew A. Fark thought they might have been pretty aggressive. He studied evidence of injuries on real Triceratops skulls. Then he grabbed some model Triceratops, small toy versions, and had them mock fight. He wasn't just playing. He compared the toys with the real skulls and showed that the injuries likely happened when Triceratops fought one another. Apparently, the animals could be quite aggressive. But in the films, characters freely walk through Triceratops and Brachiosaurus enclosures. The Jurassic World movie even shows Triceratops in a petting zoo. If you adopted those practices at Cretaceous Kingdom, you'd go broke from all the negligence lawsuits. Essentially, if you wanted a functional park, you'd need hundreds of miles where the animals could roam. This would mean guests may not see the dinos very often if they're somewhere out of sight. You'd need high security, frequent drills so your staff is prepared for escapes, giant security gates, and shelters. And that's just for the plant eaters. Your park may not be much fun for guests, so it likely wouldn't be profitable either. Who'd think you could go broke with a dinosaur attraction? Maybe we don't need to imagine a hypothetical Saurian exhibition, because this situation could become a reality in the near future. It seems scientists didn't learn their lesson from the Jurassic Park movies, because next time we'll explore how they're working to bring dinosaurs back from extinction. Thanks again for tuning in. We will be back with our final episode on Friday to explore the ways scientists are trying to bring ancient animals back to life. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories on Mondays and Wednesdays, Unexplained Mysteries on Tuesdays, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries are Spotify originals from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker and Ryan O'Leary-Jones are our supervising editors, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Laurie Marinelli, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Brian Golub. Our hosts are Carter Roy, Molly Brandenburg, and me, Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner